Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, beyond Polyev and Chere, what can Canadians expect from the Conservative Party of Canada leadership race? Well, we're going to speak with Dr. Leslin Lewis, candidate for the leadership and MP for Hall and Norfolk about that. With Canada's rapid inflation pricing Canadians out of general life, there's a recession on the horizon. That's what a lot of experts are saying. Moshe Lander, senior economist and lecturer with Concordia University, will talk with us about that. And is there a simple solution for Canada's housing affordability crisis right in front of our noses? The answer may surprise you. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. She is the uh, Member of Parliament uh, for Holloman Norfolk, and uh, she also is a, a candidate for the uh, leadership of the Federal Conservative Party. Uh, pleased to welcome to the program Leslie Leslin Lewis, uh, who is uh, joining us right now. Uh, Leslin, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us on the pr- program today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's talk a little bit about about your campaign and 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 where you are in this, and, and put it in context. I guess I'm sure you saw the Ipsos poll that was released a couple of days ago uh, that talked about you and all of the colleagues that are running for the leadership right now. Uh, I guess the good news is that uh, both you and Pia Polyev are the only ones that actually had a net positive uh, uh, impact on on conservative or likely conservative voters. Uh, but according to these numbers, you're well back in the race uh, as it stands right now. Everybody almost seems to be uh, ready to simply crown Mr. Polyev as the new leader. Uh, I know that you're in it to win it. I mean, all, all candidates are. That's why you're in the race. But what separates you? Why would people be voting for Leslie Lewis as opposed to the other candidates? Yeah, to be honest with you, the, we had the same situation in the 2020 leadership race where I won the popular vote. I think I am underestimated. And I have a lot of skills that the other candidates don't have. I come from industry. I've built wealth. I've created wealth. I've employed people. I've signed the front of a paycheck rather than the back of a paycheck. I'm not a career politician. And so I have insights that career politicians like the other two candidates that have made it on the ballot that they just don't have. And again, I, I don't want to hook too much on this Ipsos poll because any any polling is is a snapshot in time, and and this was actually taken a few days ago, and and things can change dramatically in politics, as you know. But one of the columns here that I found interesting about this is the percentage you don't know enough about them, uh, and in in your case, uh, they say fifty nine percent of the people that they polled here said they just don't know enough about you to support you. How do you get the word out there? How do you get people to understand who you are and what you stand for? Well, to be honest, it's not just the Canadian public, it's the conservative base. And so it you have to look at who was polled. If you're looking at conservative members, I'm well familiar to conservative members because I won the popular vote last time. So amongst the membership base, I am well known. I am touring right now. And I'm also doing some media interviews that will also give me more profile. And as we mentioned, there's, there's still a long way to go here. It's not going to be until uh, the fall that the, the vote's actually going to take place. So, uh, as you say, a, a day is a lifetime in politics, and there's a lot of days and a lot of lifetimes, I guess, between now and voting day. Are you comfortable with the voting method, the, the ranked balloting system? Yes, I don't have an issue with the ranked balloting system. I think it encourages people to work together because you want the down ballot of your competitors. And so I, I see that as as a good method of people working together and building unity because afterwards we will have to work together as colleagues to make sure that our party's united and our country's also united and prosperous. 
Well, uh, which is uh, leading me right into the next question then about uh, the United Party. And uh, there, there's a lot of vitriol going back and forth between some of these candidates. Uh, it's some suggestions right now that it's going to be very, very difficult to heal some of these wounds uh, once the leader is finally chosen. Can this party get behind whoever wins this race? Well, I've led a campaign which is based on unity and respecting my colleagues. And if I have a difference of opinion, it's not a personal attack, it's on policy. And so I believe that if the others stick to that, that they will run a successful campaign and, and they will be able to lead the party afterwards. My approach led me to be the first person to make all the requirements on the ballot. I've kept focus, I've kept my head down and I've run a very clean race and I expect that of my colleagues also. Is there an identity crisis with the Conservative Party right now, though, Leslie? I mean, some people are suggesting, look, at the, the, the battle here is for the, the, the heart and soul of the Conservative Party. Is, is, is this, you know, the Brian Mulroney, uh, Peter McKay Conservative Party? Uh, where are they stand? What do they stand for? And, and there's, uh, I, I think, a strong line of thought right now uh, that the party has swung to the right a lot more than some people might be comfortable with right now. And I'm talking about Conservatives I've talked to. Mm -hmm. Well, the unfortunate thing is that conservatives continue to divide themselves up into groups. I consider myself a conservative period. And it's unfortunate that many within the, the group feel that you have to be believe in one ideology or the other. I believe that each conservative can believe in different sections of our party, for example, fiscal, progressive, social, or libertarian. We are a big blue tent party and all voices should be welcome. All voices should be heard. And together we can build a united and prosperous country. Let's talk a little bit about uh, where we are right now as a country. Uh, we hope anyway uh, that we're coming out of the pandemic, although the numbers are still rather troubling about this. Uh, there's been a lot of criticism about government policy all the way through this, both federal and provincial governments. If you were the leader and if you were running this country right now, what would the conservative policy be going forward on this vis-a-vis uh, -vis COVID-19? We've been told by medical experts that, look, we're going to have to learn to live with this, uh, which means the government's going to have to have some sort of a role. Have we learned anything in the last two years that you can apply to the future? Yeah, I don't think it's productive to criticize what various governments have done because we were in a pandemic and I do believe that they whatever policies they implemented they were trying their best but we need to start healing and we need to plan for the future we need to fix our healthcare system if an infectious disease can collapse our system then it is broken and we need to admit that it's broken and the we have to address aspects of making that system better lockdowns I believe are a symptom of a broken system and failed policies. We need a pandemic plan like we had for SARS and we need our own system and not to be reliant on a global system uh, such as the, the WHO to tell us when there's a pandemic and to tell us what our responses should be. As, an, as a sovereign nation, we need to set our own pandemic response plan. You just mentioned the lockdowns, which was a key part, of course, of the, the pandemic response, uh, federally and provincially, frankly. As a matter of fact, most of the uh, uh, the lockdowns and most of the restrictions were put in place by provincial governments. Uh, did they overreact then uh, by, by doing what they did there with the lockdowns? 
As I said, I believe that our elected officials did the best job that they could. But what we need to do is we need to learn lessons from that. So we could do things like increase our ICU capacity to address the uh, designated long-term care facilities and free up some of those beds so that we don't have a situation where we have to lock people down because we feel that our healthcare system is going to be overburdened. So I think that there we can learn from our mistakes and implement solutions in the future to better respond to pandemics. It's had an impact on, on budgets, of course, right across the country, including the federal budget. Uh, the, the national debt, of course, has been increased. Uh, that started some time ago. Uh, many governments right now are swimming in red ink because of the assistance programs they put in place. How important is it for you uh, to balance the books if, if, if in fact, uh, you become leader and if, in fact, at some point down the road you become a prime minister? Uh, is that a priority? Or, or if, And if you go on to balance the books, uh, at what cost? In other words, if you're going to reduce spending, uh, something's got to give here. You've got to cancel programs. You've got to change priorities here right now. What are the priorities for, for Leslie Lewis? Yes, balancing the books is absolutely something that I would aspire to. And you don't necessarily have to cut programs to do that. You can find efficiencies within the system. Make sure that you are not wasting taxpayer dollars. Make sure that your, your spending has an impact and also up your production. We need to produce more than we're consume, consuming, bring our supply chains back home, invest in our natural resource production and ignite our economy, incentivize small and medium-sized businesses to take a chance again and re-employ people so that we'll have more dollars in the economy um, and, and, and more production. Would you support some of the existing programs, social programs, for instance, uh, the National Daycare Program that everybody's finally signed on to? Would you continue that program? Yes, I think it's a good program. There are some things that I feel are unequal about that program. For example, those people who live in rural communities may not have access to those facilities. Also, stay-at-home parents or, or individuals who have private uh, child care and are not in the in the public child care system. I think that the, we need policies to account for those individuals also. The number one issue I think in a lot of people's minds these days, of course, is affordable housing, uh, which has taken on a whole different meaning right now. I mean, people that are making six-figure salaries still kind of seem to afford a, a house, especially first-time buyers. What's the role of the federal government in, in, in dealing with that issue? Well, we know that the average Canadian is paying more than 50% of their income on housing, and so that's not sustainable. There is a supply issue. We have to increase the supply. The 100,000 homes that have been indicated in the budget, I think, is insufficient. We need an enabling government policies that will allow uh, developers to build and get out of their way, limit the red tape. We need more affordable housings. We need municipal rules that restrict the construction of new homes to, to be reduced so that developers can start to do what they do best and that's build homes. Federal government did have a role to play that many, many years ago, but during that major recession that we had uh, uh, back in the mid-80s, I guess it was, uh, the government basically just bowed out of that and left it up to the provinces and to the municipalities. Does the federal government have to play a, a bigger role? And by that, I mean, of course, you know, financially uh, to deal with this crisis? 
I think so. The transfer payments need to be sufficient to uh, facilitate that enabling provincial legislation that will encourage builders to build more, that will offset some of the municipal taxes that imposed on, for example, new homes. And so that a, a lot of those expenses can be offset through transfer payments. And I think that's essential. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. We're pretty tight on time, and I know you're busy as well. Uh, thank you so much for taking some time with us today. Uh, hopefully the first of a number of conversations we can have going down the road uh, as we head towards uh, the leadership convention itself. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's have a conversation about our money, or, or lack thereof, I suppose. Canada's inflation rate has hit a new three-decade high in March blowing past all expectations on Bay Street. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Amosha Landa. Moshe, of course, is a senior economist, lecturer with Concordia University. Uh, Moshe, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure. What's going on here? I mean, I don't, nobody predicted uh, 6.7% in March uh, from, from a year earlier. I mean, this, this, we're into new territory here, aren't we? Uh, well, like you said, it's a 31-year high. Uh, there was maybe a, a warning sign that a big number was coming when we saw the American numbers come out uh, earlier this month. Their, their number was over 8%, also hitting like a decade's high. And we know here in Canada that as the U.S. goes, so does Canada. So our, our number is trending up in a, in a dangerous way and probably going up for maybe a few more months before things start to get better. Uh, inflation has exceeded the Bank of Canada target range. They saw us of uh, one to three percent for a full year. Is 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 that based on science, Moshe, or is that wishful thinking? So no, it's it's based on uh, economic research that suggests that that is the optimal uh, inflation rate for most countries. And so you know, up until say a year ago, the Bank of Canada was wildly succeeding uh, in hitting that target. It's just uh, circumstances beyond their control, like COVID and supply chain disruptions have made it really difficult for them to hit that target without themselves destabilizing the economy through higher interest rates. I, I just don't think they could wait any longer because of what we're seeing now, and that's why they had to act. Is that, and of course, we talked about that last week. Bank of Canada did respond in that fashion. Uh, the next uh, scheduled, uh, I guess, assessment of that is going to be the 1st of June, I believe it is, uh, and they're anticipating another hike in rates at that point. Is, is that the, the, the best tool to try to attack what's going on here? It's really the only tool that the Bank of Canada has. Uh, it's just the nature of monetary policy that there's a very limited amount of, of options that they have in front of them. Some of your listeners might be familiar with the idea of you know uh, money supply and how that affects inflation. But the fact is that the money supply and the interest rate are directly linked to each other. So when they are increasing the interest rate, effectively what they're doing is trying to decrease the amount of money that's in circulation, which is to try and kind of rein in inflation. It just it takes a little bit of time for it to work its way through the economy. So that's why I'm saying we might see things get a little bit worse before things start to get better. Maybe just walk us through this a little bit for, in Economics 101. Uh, is, is the interest rate hike, uh, is, is that supposed to tell us stop spending as much money as you're spending? That's, that's about Econ 101 right there. So, yeah, you got it. Um, if you increase interest rates, then uh, consumers are going to find that, of course, uh, huge lines of credit and taking out big fat mortgages and a lot of car loans and student loans becomes really expensive to finance. And so the idea is you start cutting back on those things, saving a little bit more, spending a little bit less. But it also has impacts on, say, businesses that decide that they don't want to take out uh, big loans to finance 30-year construction projects and things like that. Hopefully, governments decide that they don't want to run 
$350 billion deficits, and they want to start to rein that in. And higher interest rates usually pushes up the value of the Canadian dollar, and so that's actually going to choke off exports as well. So all of the drivers on the demand side of the economy are going to maybe take pause and say, is now the time that we want to spend? And that'll take some of that inflationary pressure out of the economy. But you say there is a time lag. It's not going to happen right away, is it? No. I mean, if you increase interest rates like the Bank of Canada did, it's not like everybody immediately cuts their budget, right? We're, we're creatures of habit. And so uh, if we got used to spending a certain amount going to restaurants or travel or whatever it was that we were doing, we will adjust. But it, it takes a while to kind of let go of, well, we're not going to be able to do what we did last year. I mean, last year wasn't a lot of fun anyway. But, you know, the idea is that we're, we're going to have to kind of realize that, wait, this really is affecting our budget. And I think a lot of people have seen that that interest rate hike hasn't fully shown up, for example, in their mortgage payment. It might take another mortgage payment before they see the full effect of that. And then even after that, they're going to have to respond. And, and what is the full effect? I mean, as, as I see these numbers, Moshe, I, I, I can't help but go back to well, 2008, 2009 when we saw this happening. Uh, and there was, a, a, a at that time, a, a relatively high spike. And in, in, we had people, especially in the States, who were just, you know, going to the bank and handing their, their house keys and said, I can't afford this anymore. I'm out of here. Uh, you know, a drastic situation that caused us to go deep into a recession. Are, are we on that path? Yeah, I, I don't know that we're going to see a housing market collapse the way that the U.S. did. They, they had a lot more problems than just housing prices were too high. It was the nature yeah. of the way that people were getting their mortgages and who was getting mortgages. I, I don't think we have quite that issue in Canada. But, yeah, we're, we're certainly heading for a recession at some point because the, the fact is that the longer it takes for those interest rate hikes to have their full effect – and because we have the complicating factor that there's supply chain issues that are also driving prices higher, that the Bank of Canada can't do anything about, and the government can't do anything about it either, at some point they're going to say, look, if you really do want inflation back to 1% to 3%, and if we don't want to see this spilling over into people going in and demanding outrageous wage increases like we saw back in the 1980s, then yeah, they're probably going to have to engineer a recession. And that is the type of thing that we've seen from time to time that central banks do as a way to try and clear out the dead weight of the economy and, and rebalance ourselves. But that, if it happens, and of course, as you say, it's, it's, it's being induced by the Bank of Canada and its interest rates, uh, there's going to be some collateral damage there, isn't there, regardless? Yeah, the, the fact is that there's always going to be collateral damage in anything that's done, right? You're, you're having somebody on in, in a later segment talking about affordable housing, right? So yeah. one of the collateral damages that we're experiencing from this unprecedented growth is that housing has become completely unaffordable for many people, and average housing prices of $800,000 in Hamilton is, is a norm now, right? So there's always going to be damage, but the fact is that recessions are kind of a, a cleansing opportunity, that maybe there was uh, too much credit being provided, maybe there was too much lending that was going on, too much borrowing that was being used for frivolous and, and non-productive things, and so kind of rebalancing the economy gets rid of some of that, and so there's a certain aspect that if you want to see things optimistically, recession might not be a bad thing right now to kind of help everybody reset and focus. Uh, part of that uh, collateral damage back in that last uh, recession we were talking about, though, around 2010, uh, were the banks themselves, the financial institutions, in the States anyway, uh, which, by the way, the Canadian banks benefited from. I mean, you know, the you know BMO and, and TD and, and RBC, have, you know, actually purchased the, the, those entities in, in many cases, and they're doing quite well, thank you. Is there a concern here and a threat to our banking system? Possibly, but I, I certainly wouldn't say that we're going to see anything like, uh, you know, Lehman Brothers or Bear Stearns or things like that that uh, we've just seen 10 years ago in the U.S. But the fact is that the Canadian banking industry is much more concentrated among the big six 
which means it's a lot easier to regulate. I just have to use an example of if you have two kids, it's a lot easier to keep your eyes on two kids than if you have 10 kids, right? Or if you have a small classroom of 10 students, it's easier than if you have a large lecture hall of 300 students. So, you know, because the banks are highly concentrated, the the government and and the supervisory bodies are, are keeping a much closer tabs on them than in the U.S., which was much more decentralized with many more banks. Let's talk about individual debt, though, when things like this happen. And you and other economists have rightly been warning us for years now, uh, watch your debt load, uh, because interest rates aren't going to stay this low forever. And we said, yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, it's starting and it is happening right now. Uh, Is there a concern about what this is going to do to individual debt? Because we're probably all guilty of that in one way, shape or form. Yeah, and that's why I was saying that a recession might not be a bad thing, right? We're probably going to see that as interest rates go up, you know, the next news cycle story that you and I are going to talk about is maybe the increasing number of personal bankruptcies, right? Um, That's, of course, a tragedy for anybody who has to file for bankruptcy, and it's not to trivialize it, but uh, the fact is that in a lot of cases, those bankruptcies are coming from bad borrowing decisions, that it was taking on too much debt and taking it on for the wrong reasons. The good thing that comes out of that is that if there is an increase in bankruptcies, uh, those assets that they have are still productive, right? It's not that the assets are no longer worth anything. It's just the people that own them can't finance them. So somebody's going to come along and say, I can put it to better use or I can finance it and I can deploy it in a more efficient way. And that's what allows the economy to rebound from a recession in a stronger way. So there is good that eventually comes out of it. Uh, and again, we have to ask ourselves, I guess, what's going to happen in the interim. I mean, it's, a, it's like when you're watching a movie, and you know, and then you see some tragic event, and then it says next scene, it says six months later. Well, we got to live those six months or six years or however long that's going to take. Uh, and is is it fair to say, though, Moshe, that that every recession is different? It depends on on how it started and and how deep we we are in, in a situation like this. Like, I'm I'm not anticipating we're going to see a repeat of 2009, are we? No, and, and you're exactly right. Every recession is different, and it's caused usually by different things as well. And so uh, the length of the recession and who's going to be affected by the recession is usually different as well. So it's not like we can go back in a playbook and say, all right, this is going to be a repeat of the 1983 recession or the 1992 recession. They might have similar characteristics, and that's, I guess, why you bring me on, is to say, what is it that's similar about this one, or what makes this night different from all other nights? But that's exactly the type of thing then that it, it's kind of hard at this point to see where exactly this is going to land. And in part, that's going to be then based on the decisions of, say, the Bank of Canada and how the various levels of government help to deal with the various people caught up in the upcoming recession. One thing that I have noticed, though, I've lived through a few of these, as you have, uh, is eventually it gets to the point where there's going to be an awful lot of public pressure on the Bank of Canada to say enough is enough. Don't do this anymore. Uh, Now, can they resist that? Because it seems to me as if they're saying, "Look, this is this is bad. This is tough medicine, but it's the only choice we've got at this stage." That's exactly it. And and the Bank of Canada, because it has that independence from the government, and because it's not an elected office, they can shrug their shoulders and say, "Look, we were put in this position with a mandate to keep inflation between one and three percent, and we let it slide during COVID because we didn't want to create a recession in the middle of a pandemic." But now that we're coming out of at least the economic part of the pandemic, then the fact is that we now need to let loose. And sorry, uh, but we're going to do it until we hit the mandate that we've been given the responsible for stewarding in this economy, right? One to three percent inflation. And so it's going to come one way or the other. Uh, It's just a matter of how fast are we as individuals and households willing to accept that it's coming and to take our medicine, right? Uh, under the old phrase of uh, misery loves company, uh, we're talking about our situation, certainly here in Canada. 
is is this going to be a global recession when we to finally get to that stage? I, I can't see anybody who's going to uh, be able to escape this. I mean, because we're all pretty much in the same boat, aren't we? We are. And what's going to be interesting to watch is that the world is experiencing this turmoil, but we're all experiencing it in different ways, right? That the sixth wave that we're talking about now in Canada is the sixth wave that Europe was talking about three months ago or six months ago, right? So because the global market is experiencing these gyrations that are kind of mismatched, when we're going into a recession, Europe might be coming out. And so this is the type of thing then where uh, these ripple effects are are all going to experience things in in different ways then, right? Because of those supply chains, uh, this is going to have kind of global ramifications. Uh, It's just the nature of globalization. It's not something to rail against. It's just something to kind of learn how to work with it. And as you've been telling us for years now, uh, markets and, and financial institutions don't like instability. Uh, and I guess we're up to our knees in it right now, aren't we, with, uh, with as you say, supply chain issues. There's a war going on in Europe right now, and that's got to have an impact on it too, I would think. Absolutely. And so the, the best thing that we can have right now is within this instability, what we want is at least some level of transparency. And so, you know, give credit to the Bank of Canada where they came out after that meeting last week and they said, we're not done. So, you know, by trying to tell us, look, this is why we took the step of the half percentage point increase, and this is why we're probably going to do it again in June, and this is why you better start putting things in order, it at least reduces some level of uncertainty and instability that at least we're hearing from our uh, leaders in the financial institutions and that, look, this is coming, and you better get used to it. And so that's why I'm saying that the sooner that we learn that we need to take action now, it's going to make it easier to... Uh, you know, minimize the damage of a recession or to make sure that the Bank of Canada doesn't have to increase interest rates as much as possible. If we're hard-headed and race into the boss's office and start demanding outrageous wage claims, that will continue to spill over into higher inflation. just means the Bank of Canada is going to have to make the medicine all the more nasty uh, to get to where we need. You just made an interesting point here. As I say, June 1st, we're expecting another uh, hike, uh, and they're anticipating it's going to be another half point. Uh, usually the Bank of Canada moves in baby steps, and it was a quarter point. They nudge it up a little bit or down. Uh, is half a point going to be the new normal, at least for the short term anyway? I think until there's some sort of topping out at the inflation number, yeah, right? If, if we're talking again in a month's time that the inflation number is 7%, Right. We just can't get to that psychological threshold of double digit inflation. Right. At, at that point, it's just too difficult for people to resist going in and demanding outrageous wage claims. So by the Bank of Canada showing they mean action, hopefully this spills over into enough people's frontal lobes that they say, all right, they're taking this seriously. I need to take this seriously and understand that they're going to bring this back under control. So I, I think that half a percent for now. Yeah. But I, I think there's probably you know, maybe one or two more of those, and then it'll go back to the quarter percent that we're used to. Well, we'll find out, I guess, in a couple of weeks' time when uh, they finally decide what they're going to do here, and we'll be watching those numbers, too. Moshe, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. Anytime. Talk in a couple of weeks. You betcha. Moshe Lander, Senior Economist and Lecturer at Concordia University. Uh, and we're in it now, and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a pretty bleak financial picture right now. Uh, but we'll keep an eye on that and uh, keep talking with experts like Moshe and uh, keep you posted on what's going on with your money. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. How are we going to fix the housing crisis? And it is a crisis these days. We're talking about affordability, uh, people moving all over the place. So, uh, I'm Tim Hudak, of course, from the Real Estate Association, uh, telling us you drive till you can buy. You know, find a place that's affordable if you're lucky. Uh, 
and and governments are trying different things. I mean, they're raising interest rates. One of them, uh, they say there's more. You know, we need more houses. There has to be a, a, an increase in supply. What uh, interesting op-ed piece in the Conversation.com that talks about an old idea that may be part of the solution here. Uh, the title is called "Housing Co-ops Could Solve Canada's Housing Affordability Crisis." Uh, and uh, Margaret Cohen, who is a professor in political science. Uh, in political theory at the University of Toronto, the author, and uh, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. So, Professor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, this is kind of a, a refreshing idea. I mean, you know, those of us that have lived through some of these in the past, and uh, I mentioned yesterday on the program, I mean, I'm one of the uh, the survivors of the uh, 19% mortgages way back in the early 1980s, so I know how bad it can get. Uh, but the idea of a co-op is, is not, as I mentioned, not a new idea, but it might be the right one for us right now, wouldn't it? Absolutely. I think what we're looking for right now is to provide affordable housing at a low cost. And the co-op system has a track record of achieving that. So all we need is more government funding to restart these programs that have been successful in the past and we'll have a solution for the housing affordability crisis. Now, how would we get this this whole thing going again? I mean, as you mentioned, it was used before. It's still being used in other parts of the world uh, rather successfully. How do we bring governments to the table to say this is the idea? Well, one of the things I'm trying to do is to talk about the experience of the cooperative housing movement and the advantages it has for Canada, as well as the track record of success around the world, as you mentioned. So I think some people might think, oh, co-ops, that's a kind of pretty niche idea. But in a city like Vienna, which is often listed alongside Toronto as one of the most livable cities in the world, 60% of residents live in units that are either cooperative or owned by the municipal government. And so we see that this can be scaled up. It doesn't have to be something that's just on the margins. It could be at the center of our housing policy. Let's talk a little bit about that, because you're absolutely right. As soon as we use the phrase affordable housing uh, or co-op in this particular situation, it, it conjures up in some people's minds anyway uh, about, you know, well, shall, shall we say, uh, you know, considerably less than maybe some people are wanting to they, you know they're talking about the quality of the of the the, the houses themselves and you know the, these are poor neighborhoods and and you know i don't want to be a part of that that's not part of the solution maybe you could explain exactly how this system works and, and how it could work here Thank you. That's a great question, because I think a lot of our listeners perhaps don't know exactly how housing cooperatives work. And of course, co-op can mean lots of different things, just like business can mean lots of different things. But when we talk about nonprofit housing cooperatives in um, Canada and in Ontario in particular, they take a particular form. So usually they are managed by the people who live there. That means residents elect a board of directors and they approve the annual budget. Two-thirds of the residents typically pay what are called market rents, but those rents are actually much lower than what you would pay on the private rental market because all they have to do is cover the cost of the mortgage if there is one and maintenance costs. One-third of the people usually have some sort of subsidy by the government. That means they pay one-third of, um, one of their income and the rest is topped up by the government subsidy. So you naturally have a mixed-income community. Then also there's kind of a culture of participation and volunteerism. Residents help out with maintenance or administrative tasks or social activities. And that's another way that it keeps costs low. And, and there's a pooling of resources. And, and you mentioned about maintenance too. Is that all included in, in the payment that the, the, the tenant would make? 
Exactly. So in the cooperative housing sector, they describe it as housing charges. And so that's something similar to rent. So now imagine that you um, bought a house in the 1970s or in the early 1980s. You may have paid off the mortgage entirely by now or your payments would be very low. So now for new people moving into an existing housing cooperative, they pay those same low charges, whatever's necessary to finish paying the mortgage or the ongoing maintenance costs. And so that's why even people who are paying the full price are paying very little. So the way I like to describe it is it's like, imagine you inherit like a property from you know, a relative, you feel like you got really lucky. Well, with cooperatives, the entire society is inheriting something from the past. And what happens, uh, you mentioned the case of what you're making the monthly payments, et cetera, and I think most people are familiar with that system. Uh, once the mortgage is paid off, what happens? That is a good question because that's what we're facing right now in Ontario because most of these mortgages were 40, 50-year mortgages, and they started in the 70s or 80s. And right now, housing cooperatives are in that situation. So in some ways, this is fantastic. You know, housing costs can decrease even further. Now, on the other hand, some buildings need a lot of maintenance. Imagine you inherit that house from, you know, a grandparent. It may well need to be renovated, and so those costs can be high. And I think cooperatives right now are engaged in what can sometimes be a difficult conversation about how to move forward but if we were to model our system here on some place like Austria some of the money that's then saved by the fact you're not paying off a mortgage is reallocated as seed money for building new cooperatives to expand this uh, form of affordable housing even further and provide new units to people who um, right now don't have access because yeah, in fact, there are long waiting lists because this is very attractive yeah. to people well, yeah, and we've seen that happen in various cities. I think I believe in Hamilton, it was something like a six or seven year wait for affordable housing. Uh, and that's by the municipal government. So, so obviously anything to cut into that number is going to be beneficial to us. Uh, are, when you set this cooperative up, as you mentioned, you know, the people are elected, there's a board. Uh, are they allowed to keep a, 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 a contingency fund for situations like that, for maintenance or for emergencies, uh, you know, that, that could happen anytime? With, as you say, the older they get, the more they cost you to do the upkeep on them. Yes, absolutely. So there were different cooperative programs that were funded by the Canadian Mortgage Housing Corporation. And so there are different rules. And of course, you know, it is a regulated sector because there is government support there. But different cooperatives also make different decisions because they do collectively own their buildings and projects. And so um, there's different decisions that um, are reached through democratic decision making. But I did uh, want to just um, mention one thing because you did uh, talk sure. about social housing and I want to just distinguish between cooperative housing and social housing because two-thirds of these units in cooperative houses, um, they tend to be affordable, but they're kind of naturally affordable. They're like affordable the way that my house that I own is affordable because I bought it 10 years ago and the mortgage is sort of low. And, and so they're not actually subsidized by the government, those slots. Which is why I asked you right at the beginning of our conversation to, to actually maybe you define and explain what this is, because I think you're right. I think, uh, you know, playing word association, a lot of people conflate those two things and think, well, that's what we're talking about. I don't, I don't want any part of that. Uh, but, you know, as you describe this, it makes a lot more sense. It's the same people, you know, if you own a condo, there's a condo board, there are, there are fees, uh, you know, the grass gets cut, the snow gets shoveled, et cetera, et cetera. But you pool the resources to do that. It's, it's basically the same idea, isn't it? 
Um, I would just draw one important distinction though. So in a condo, the value goes up over time and you can sell it at a profit. Mm -hmm. So if you are a member of a housing cooperative, you own the building collectively, but you don't actually own individual stake in it. And so if you leave, you don't sell anything. You don't come out with a profit. So it's affordable in perpetuity because no one is able to take out an equity stake. So in that sense, it's not something which is like a good investment for an individual person, but for society, it remains affordable forever. Exactly. Can we get our heads around uh, renting? I mean, that used to be part of the, the housing dynamic, you know, and uh, you'd maybe start an apartment or whatever, or maybe part of a house or whatever, and you'd rent uh, and, and eventually gravitate to home ownership. Uh, and so, notwithstanding what we're talking about financially these days, Professor, some people still have that as the end game and, and can't get their heads around the fact that maybe renting is the best option. How do, how do you bring people to, to that conclusion that, yeah, this is not such a bad idea after all? Well, the thing I would start with is the fact that there are long waiting lists for these units in cooperatives. So right now the demand uh, outstrips supply. And I think that's because you know they are affordable and because there is this option of participation in democratic governance that makes them attractive places to live. So I think right now it's not so much that we need to attract more people to apply for these units, but the opposite, that we need to convince the government, which means all of us citizens, to invest in this model and expand the number of slots that are available. I think you know if um, we build it, they will come. And it's not for everybody. This is not like you know yeah. Canadian public health care where we're gonna like ban public ban private housing. Of course, there'll always be a role to play for private housing. And even in Vienna, which is the place that has the largest cooperative sector in the world, it's still 60% of residents, which means 40% are you know, owning private homes. That will always be an option, but it won't be something you're forced into. And one thing I wanted to mention, we think of like housing affordability is primarily about, you know, um, people who are really rent burdened or at risk of homelessness. And of course, those are the people who are most adversely affected. But I wanted to mention, like, I have a younger friend who just bought a house, really big mortgage, was in a stressful situation in her job, a kind of toxic work environment. And she felt like, and saying in tears, I can't leave my job because of the mortgage. So for a lot of people, I think it would be a relief not to be compelled into this, you know, very high priced um, housing market. And, and again, that's, there's an education process that would simply have to take place then, wouldn't it? So people are aware of actually uh, the pros and cons of, of, of moving like this. Exactly. Okay, the, the, the elephant in the room, of course, is government sponsorship of this. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned in the piece, because I think a lot of us still remember the days where uh, the federal government played a large role in, in, in public, in, not public housing, but in affordable housing. Uh, and they dropped the ball. You know, we had that terrible recession in the the 1980s. And, of course, government said, okay, we got to cut back on our spending. And uh, their commitment to housing was one of the things that was on the chopping block. And they it, they have not really come back to, to the extent that a lot of people would like to see. For the lumber years, they didn't give us anything at, from the federal level. Uh, now they seem to have, have had a reawakening and they seem to be do this. How important is it for them to make a commitment to something like this, to make something, uh, as you've just described here, affordable uh, and an option? It's, it's uh, as you mentioned in the piece, it's not the answer, but it could be part of the answer. Yeah, absolutely. There had been an enormous commitment on the part of the government, and that's what created these, you know, 160,000 um, spots in Ontario that to this day are very um, successful. And then the funding dried up, and then the construction of new co-ops also stopped. And 
cooperative housing is actually very cost efficient because in fact the people living there are paying the mortgage so what we're talking about is startup costs so imagine the government is kind of chipping in a down payment so you can get those architectural plans built you can get you know the permitting process you can get started so you're getting a lot of bang for your buck and in fact studies have found that the cost of providing this kind of housing is lower than the alternatives however you know individual people can't really do that on their own so they need the assistant of assistance of um, you know, social housing developers or, you know, organizations, and the government needs to contribute that sort of um, planning work. It's the kind of thing that the public needs to take the lead on, but then ultimately the residents themselves contribute and sustain. We talk to people that are, are desperate for housing these days, and I'm sure you've heard many of these stories too, Professor. And and one of the most difficult parts, of course, is to get the down payment, uh, to even qualify to buy a, pro a property. Uh, the way you're describing this now, it seems to me as if the government actually kind of supplies that down payment for them. In other words, they're they're a partner in this, and there's no chance of defaulting here because the, the tenant is actually paying that mortgage off. Exactly. So um, there was a very strong track record. Uh, cooperatives, none of the cooperatives in Ontario defaulted on their mortgage, despite the fact that these were very, very high interest rates of the kind that you described, right, in the early 1980s, and still they were able to pay them off. So I think uh, the interest rates after that tended to be lower because it was such a good investment, and I think moving into the future it will be also. So you mentioned the, there's a lot of this going on in Europe and in Scandinavia with great success. Uh, how can we borrow this? How do you how do you get a federal government and provincial governments uh, to partner into something like this and see this as part of the solution? I, I know there's a an ongoing battle, as, as I'm sure you're aware, between the Ontario government and the federal government about who's going to pay for what when it comes to the housing crisis. But uh, we I, it's incumbent upon us, I guess, isn't it, to get everybody to the table right now and to talk about solutions like this? Absolutely. And so the federal budget really focused on providing tax cuts or sometimes we call them tax expenditures to help new homeowners enter into the market. And I can understand why they want to do that because, you know, people are feeling really strapped and kind of they've seen all their friends make all this money on the housing market. They want to get into it. So there's like a strong group of people with a direct short-term financial interest in getting this assistance. The demand for nonprofit cooperative housing is a little bit more diffuse. Some of the people who would most benefit from it and would like to have access to it maybe don't even know about it as an option. So politically, it's a little bit harder to organize, right? Developers have the things they want and, you know, new homeowners have the things they want. But the people who aren't, you know, right now in high quality housing, they're a little bit harder to organize. And so I think that explains the political logic behind this. But we've done it in the past. Other countries around the world have done it. So it is doable. And I'm really optimistic that uh, the federal government will move in this direction, um, you know, as the as the kind of understanding of these options diffuses through society. Well, because one of the solutions, and I, I heard this in the budget, and we were just talking with some provincial representatives on the program earlier this week about this, uh, and they say it's simple, supply and demand. Build more houses and the prices are going to go down. Uh, and I, I understand that theory, but it's not always true, is it? I mean, we could build a lot more houses. I think the government made a commitment to 100000 in the federal budget. Uh, but that's not going to necessarily bring prices down to the point where it's actually affordable. This seems to be a much better tack to take in situations like that. It's not just that we need more supply. It's the kind of supply that we're going to build that's going to make a difference. 
Exactly. So I'm sort of in the both and camp. I'm not going to run down a kind of supply side strategy. I'm from San Francisco originally where the YIMBY movement came from. Yes, in my backyard, we need to make it easier to build things. In San Francisco, they weren't building enough. So, I mean, it's not that there's nothing to that logic, but here actually in Toronto, well, I guess so this is, you know, province-wide, we've been building a lot. And so we actually have increased supply more than the increase in population and still like prices have doubled. So that shows that that's not the only thing going on. So what's the other thing going on? Well, I think it's the fact that there is a lot of speculation. People have seen prices go up. They want to get in on it. It's not mostly foreigners. It's mostly local people. And so there's a lot of units that are empty or people are living in larger houses than they need. So I think that supply alone is not going to solve the problem that we have to have a focus on affordability. But I think that, you know, we should do both. It's not as if we should see them as, you know, mutually exclusive. Well, exactly. And and I, I think this is why it should be required reading, I think, for government officials. Uh, I just mentioned, of course, that we have a provincial election coming up on June the 2nd. It'd be kind of nice if we could have this as part of the debate uh, about a potential solution for this. It's, it's a thought-provoking piece. I, I'll direct our listeners to go to theconversation.com uh, and you can read it uh, in much greater detail. Uh, Professor, a pleasure having you on the program today. Thanks so much for this. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Professor Margaret Cohen from the University of Toronto, uh, professor of political theory at the university. And uh, let's let's get that discussion going about how we build. And I think that's one of the key elements of this. Yes, we need more supply. Absolutely, we do. But if they're going to be, you know, supplies of $900,000 homes, uh, that's still unaffordable for an awful lot of people. And this may be the co-op situation may well be a part of that solution. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.